John begins from the get-go to teach us what it means to follow Jesus. He doesn't leave it vague or left to our best guess as to what a disciple of Jesus is like. After proclaiming clearly who Jesus is, we are given the example of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one who lived what he preached. And we see that in the passage we are about to read. John's message focused upon, there is one coming after me who's greater than I am. Follow him. And what we see in this passage this morning is John living that. We live in an age that when a, a leader begins to gain followers, that leader's thought is not about sending them away to someone else. Media would tell us, if you've got people that are following you, do everything you can to keep them. But John the Baptist knows his purpose. And he lives that purpose. He sends his followers to Jesus. Follow with me as we read this text, starting at verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Would you please bow with me and let's pray together. Father, we live in a world that is often built upon opinion. And in this mixture, Lord, of opinions and judgments, we have lost truth. Lord, we need the truth. So I ask you, Lord, to give us ears to hear you this morning. Your word is truth. Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. So we ask you, Lord, to give us ears to hear. Would you please make loving you the desire of our hearts? So, Father, speak. In the name of Jesus, our mediator, we ask this. Speak and change us. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the things that anyone who has gone through an extended period of illness learns 
is that there are things of life that go on. Things still happen. Last summer we encountered one of those moments. We were still at the hospice house in Bristol and Ellen was doing some things in town and her and her boyfriend had gone out to eat when that afternoon I got a phone call from her and she said, Dad, my car will not start. Well, my first question, did you have anybody try to boost it off? And she said, yes, but it still wouldn't start. Well, we'll go and we'll see what we can do. So I went and picked up a new battery, headed over to Ole Guacamole, and um, pulled in the parking lot, put a whole new battery in, turned the crank, nothing. Turned the crank, it makes it sound like I got out there and twisted. Um, turned the key, nothing happened. So it was clear this was something a little more serious than just a battery. So called the garage, they put me in contact with the tow truck, called the tow truck. They said, Mr. Herod will be glad to pick up your daughter's car and bring it in. What's the car? It's a white Honda Accord, got Milligan parking permits in the back window. He said, just leave the keys in it, we'll take care of it. Very good. A few hours later, I got a call back. It was the towing person, the owner of the towing company. He said, did you say that was a white Honda Accord? Yes, sure did. Anything else about the car? I said, yes, I mean, it does have Milligan parking stickers in the back. He said, that's what I thought you said. My guy got the wrong car. Who would have thought there'd be two white Honda Accords in the parking lot, both with their keys in it? Go figure. He said, well, I will take that back and get your daughter's car. Said, Very good. Interesting thing is he called me back a little bit later and he said, I got that car back in its place. The owner never knew we're good to go now. <laughs> Which made me think, how many times has my car been towed and I never knew it? <laughs> you know, you never know now. I'm always in doubt. So now here's, here's what I want you to consider with that, that mix-up. I want you to think about that mix-up in terms of faith. You see, it's very easy to substitute false faith for the real thing. And when it comes to following Jesus, it's very easy to get mixed up in what that really means. Jesus himself taught that. Jesus said on the day of the Lord, there'll be many that stand in front of him and they'll say, Lord, Lord, which is a way of saying we loved you. We, we, we have a term of endearment for you. Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do mighty works? Jesus says on that day, I'll look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Isn't it scary to think about that we could know the names of Jesus, we can preach well, we could do good things, and on that day hear him say, I don't know you. You know what that would look like for us? On that day, there will be people that will stand in front of him and they'll say, but Lord, Lord, I raised my hand at the end of that service when I was a teenager. Lord, I, I checked the box that said, I believe. Lord, I even prayed the prayer. And Jesus is going to say, but I didn't know you. You lifted your hand. You checked the box. You prayed the prayer. But your life never showed any sign of seeking me. Others may say, but Lord, Lord, I went to church. I was good. I did what my mama taught me. I went to church whenever the doors were open. And Jesus will say, 
Depart from me. You are following tradition rather than following me. Others may answer, but Lord, I was spiritual. Lord, I, I added Jesus into all my, my different meditations, and I added Jesus into all the different beliefs that I hold to, and I was spiritual. I found the God within me, and I was at peace. And Jesus will say, that may have been a spirit in you, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. I didn't know you, and you didn't know me. You see, it's one thing for us to talk about saving faith, but it's an under, one thing, another thing to understand what it is. The Gospel of John is written so that you and I will understand what it means to follow Jesus. At the very end of the book, John says these things were written so that you might believe, and by believing, have life. Believing is not just acknowledging facts. Believing is much more than that. Believing is not just about knowing the right things, it's about living those things. It's about following Jesus. And that's why from the very beginning, John wants us to have no doubt what it looks like to follow Jesus so that we can identify what true saving faith is. In John chapter 3, we'll be introduced to a phrase that's become synonymous with evangelicalism. Born again. Born again means new life. And the Gospel of John teaches us that new life means discipleship. To be born again means that one has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now sadly, we tend to separate evangelism and discipleship as if they are two different things. But the Bible doesn't make such a distinction. Evangelism or conversion is simply the starting point of discipleship. It's the base camp from which you begin to climb. It's where things begin. You see, being saved is not the end of the journey. It's simply the beginning. Because to be saved means to be a disciple. So we need to be asking, what does a disciple look like? How do we know we're on the path of discipleship? True to form, John doesn't leave us guessing. In these verses, verses 35 through 42, he describes what the path of discipleship looks like using John the Baptist, and he shows this transition from John the Baptist to Jesus as John points his followers to who Jesus is. And the very starting point is found in verse 36. The path of discipleship begins with a clear confession of who Jesus is. Once again, John the Baptist sees Jesus. And for the second time, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now the fact this is repeated shows us it's very important. When something is repeated in the scripture, we should take notice. So he emphasizes who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's a very weighty phrase. It was believed in John's time that the Messiah would be represented by a lamb, not just a nice, gentle little lamb, but a military-type lamb, a lamb who would conquer through meekness, one who would conquer through sacrifice. He says, Jesus is that Messiah. He conquers not through military might, but through the giving of his life. The Lamb of God carries the meaning of the lamb who takes our place at the Passover. Of one whose, whose death signifies that one has already died in the place of those who deserve 
death. And he shows us, based upon Genesis 22, that the lamb is supplied by God. It is God's lamb. So what that means is that discipleship begins with a declaration of Jesus Christ as the one who gives us victory over sin and death. A declaration that Jesus does this because he took the wrath of God in our place upon the cross. And he did this, God did this, because we could not save ourselves. Discipleship begins with the recognition that Jesus died in your place. And that he rose again so that you could be made right with God. You see, saving faith is radically centered upon Jesus Christ. Because the disciple knows that without Jesus, there is no salvation. So we cannot deny Jesus, nor can we think that it is the God within us who saves. And understand that the scripture is clear on who Jesus is. This is not a vague Jesus. This is not the Jesus of philosophy. And it's not a political Jesus who is used for our cause. It is the Jesus who came preaching. It is the Jesus who proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is the Jesus who was kind and compassionate towards sinners, yet thundered at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It is the Jesus who prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. It is the Jesus who was crucified in our place and rose from the dead so that we could be right with God. So does your faith focus upon that Jesus? Do you think about that daily? This is not a truth that you say, I believe that, fold up and put in your pocket to only pull out when you need it. This is at the very heartbeat of discipleship that Jesus Christ is the Lord crucified and resurrected. And so that needs to fill our thinking each and every moment of each and every day. It's not something that is optional. Jesus is to be at the center of life, not the periphery. He's not to be an add-on. He's at the core of who we are. And that's important because discipleship not only focuses upon that truth of who Jesus is, the path of discipleship follows that Jesus. There are three ideas that emerge in this passage about what it means to be a disciple. Notice in verse 37 that the two disciples heard John say this. And what do they do? They follow Jesus. This is emphasized again in verse 20, 38. Jesus turns and he sees them following him. Follow is shorthand for becoming a disciple. It's a way of saying to be a disciple is to follow Jesus. We follow him as our teacher. Verse 38. What are you seeking? You notice he didn't say, who are you seeking? He's asking them as they are following him, what are they looking for? Is this some sort of easy believism that they want? What are they seeking? It's the call for the disciple to look in our lives and to say, what are we seeking? A tailor-made Jesus that fits our desires? Or are we looking for the one who is the Messiah? And notice how they respond to him. Rabbi. Now John doesn't want us to miss the importance of this, so he defines it for those who are reading this and don't know what rabbi means. Teacher. We follow Jesus as our teacher. And this is not just a one-time thing. Look at verses 38 and 39. They ask Jesus, where are you staying? Verse 39, Jesus says, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. 
That word stay could also be translated as abide. John is, is, is setting this idea in our minds of staying and abiding. So when we read in John 15 where he says, abide in me, our minds will go back and to say, that's what the first disciples were seeking. Where are you abiding? We want to abide with you. So what is a disciple? It's one who follows Jesus as their teacher to learn from him and they abide with him. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Years ago, I heard a young man preaching. His name was Neil McClendon, and Neil told a story. At the time, he was at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. He was waiting on a flight, obviously, and he noticed that leaning against a wall was a gentleman that was reading his Bible. Now, Neil knew this was the Bible because this person was not reading one of the pocket Gideon Testaments. He wasn't reading a Bible like this. He was reading the family coffee table that serves as a filing cabinet and pictorial directory Bible. Big Bible. And not only was this person reading it, this person is reading the Bible and he's, he's interacting with it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, oh, that hurts. Ooh, that's true, that's true. So this guy is engaging with the Word of God. So Neil says, I'm intrigued. So I walk up to him and I ask the obvious question. Pardon me, sir. I see you're reading the Bible. Are you a Christian? He said the guy looked up at him like, what? What are you asking? But then he got this look on his face that he was considering what Neil had said. And the gentleman said this. You know, there are a lot of people that use the word Christian today. I prefer to think of myself as a follower of Jesus. I think we need to reclaim that. There are many people in America that will say, yes, I'm a Christian. And they think they're Christian simply because they live in America. We are followers of Jesus Christ. So a disciple looks to Jesus for how to live and how to think. They follow Jesus as their teacher. They look to Jesus to understand how to act and to react in the decisions that we face. Because as a follower of Jesus, Jesus takes preeminence over everything else in life. So what that means is, as a disciple, I want to know what Jesus would have me do and think in the circumstances that I face. So even as living in this nation... We must recognize that our primary calling is to follow Jesus' disciples and that supersedes even our citizenship as Americans. And that means that when we face issues in our nation, we are to think of them as Christians, as disciples, and to say, Lord, what would you have me think on these issues that we wrestle with? How does a disciple, a follower of Jesus, think about this? Because far too often we fall simply into tradition. Rather than seeking the mind of God on these things. It also means we not only seek God or how Jesus would have us live on the big issues. But in the everyday things of life. You see this idea of following Jesus as a disciple. Means that every part of our life is to be placed underneath his lordship. A disciple wants to follow Jesus in every interaction with life. Every interaction with people. See, this is not just some periphery Jesus. It means that as you engage with people, you're thinking, Jesus, what would you have me do? I'm still in the process of learning this myself. This past week, I was having a very, very difficult day. It was just a hard day, just a downcast day. Jody told me I needed to go pick up some things at the store. 
Now, I know there are certain people that you make a list on Monday, you go to the store one time a week, and that's it, and I say, God bless you. We make a list every third hour and end up going to the store. So I said, sure, I'll go get what we need, and I go to the store. And when I get to the front of the store, and like I said, I'm in a bad mood. I'm downcast. My soul's just heavy. And I get there, and of course, there's 15 registers, and one's open. And so there's a line. And me and my deep spirituality sought God and said, Lord, thou have given me this moment to grow in patience. No. I started getting mad. Why in the world do you have 15 registers and only one open? That don't make no sense. Well, they called and two or three other people opened up registers. And, of course, the people that were further up in line, they go to those other registers, and that's fine. And then I'm standing there stewing like I'm Eeyore at this point. And I hear a voice. Sir, sir, I can get you over here. Sir, sir. And there was something in her tone that didn't sit right with me. Like, I should have heard that the first time. Like, hey, you, stupid, I'm calling your name. That's how I took it. That's not what she said. That's how I took it in the flesh. So I go storming over there with my cart, push it there. I didn't hear you. I said that to her. And I said, I said it in that tone. She couldn't have been more than 20 years old. God bless her. She didn't raise her voice bad an eye. She just, she just said, I'm sorry, sir. I'm here to help you if I can. She noticed I was buying a lot of CPAP water. We have to use distilled water with the filters in Emma's room. She said, you snore, sir? I laughed at that, and I said, no, I, I don't. It's, it's a long story. It's for my daughter. She's got a, got a trach, and we have to use filtered water with her. She said, I had a sister that had a trach for a while, too. God humbled me. Because I was wrong. That's what a disciple does. They say, Lord, in my interactions with people, do I show you? Am I willing to say, I'm sorry for what I said just a moment ago? I just thank God I didn't say anything worse. A disciple says, Lord, am I treating this person how Jesus would treat them? They don't assume their actions are right. A disciple knows their attitudes, their actions, their reactions must be changed and shaped by Jesus. And so there's a humility with being a disciple. A humility that says, Lord, I've not got it all figured out. But you know, we like to justify things. I've actually heard people who profess to be believers justify anger by saying, I'm just an angry person. God made me this way. This is the way I am. And I can't help but wonder, how many sins would we justify by saying that? If a person that was cheating on their wife looked at you and said, I'm an adulterer, that's just the way I am, would we say, okay, that's the way you are? A disciple doesn't settle for that. A disciple says, this may be the way that I am, but God, change me. Change me, Lord. I read in your word that I shouldn't let anger control me. I read in your word I should treat others with kindness and gentleness. A disciple says, Lord, teach me, change me. And that does not happen overnight. 
think a lot of times we give up on this idea of discipleship because the change is not instantaneous. We want it immediately. And there are times God does bring about change instantaneously. I've heard the testimonies of people who struggled with drunkenness and they were saved and God took that away. But I've also heard the other testimonies of the person who says, I struggle every day and there have been times that I have fallen but I've gotten back up by God's grace and I've repented and I keep pressing on because God's changing me. That's where the word abide is so crucial. Being a disciple is not a short-term commitment. It's not a momentary thing. For some reason in my household the rest of my family have become tea drinkers I still drink coffee but they have chosen to drink tea I never knew there were so many different types of tea I only thought there was Lipton and Nest tea but it's a whole different world whole different world and did you know that you can you can approach tea in different ways they have these mesh thingies at, at the house these little balls of mesh and you put tea leaves in it you put that down in the tea, look it up at Amazon, mesh thingy for tea. And the thing that I've learned, because every now and then they'll say, Mark, would you mind getting some tea? You can determine the strength of the tea. You see, there's some people that like their tea just kind of mild and weak. And you know what they do? They get the tea leaves in that mesh thingy, and they just kind of dip it up and down, dip it up and down. But there are others that want a stronger tea. So they put the tea leaves in the tea, and they let it steep my knowledge of tea is growing they let it steep stay in there the longer it stays the stronger it gets there are believers that like to dip into Jesus and dip out things get rough and bad I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into the scripture I'm going to get back in church and they're in church for a while then things get smooth and guess what they, they come back out until something else happens. And then they want to get back in. They're in and out. They're in and out. And then they wonder, why is, why is there no growth? Why am I still the same? This Jesus thing doesn't work. But there are others that take the approach, I want to linger. I want to stay in. I want to steep in Jesus. So I want to be in the Word regularly. I want to be with other believers. I want to think on the cross. I want to hear things that remind me of the cross. They steep. And that's where true change comes about. Now, I know it's easy to say, well, pastor, I'm not, I'm not one who likes to read. I'm not one who, who does all these things. One of the beautiful things of the Gospel of John is this. It shows that following Jesus is for every type of person. John introduces us to a wide variety of people. In fact, later on in this passage, we are introduced to Andrew. Andrew is shown as a person who's always bringing somebody to Jesus. You know what a disciple does? They're bringing somebody to Jesus. Andrew is introduced three times specifically in the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, he brings Peter to Jesus. In chapter 6, he brings a little boy who has two, lo two fish and five loaves of bread to Jesus. In chapter 12, Andrew and Philip bring a bunch of Greeks to Jesus. Always bringing somebody to Jesus. But there are other times. John introduces us to many people who come to Jesus. Have you ever felt like the outcast who doesn't fit in? Because you've lived too much life and too short of a time? There's a woman in John chapter 4 who is that outcast. Made bad decision after bad decision and now the people won't have anything to do with her. She comes to Jesus. Some may say, well that's not me, Pastor. I'm, 
I'm mover and a shaker. I'm a businessman. I work sales. I engage with people. There was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, a businessman who, guess what, comes to Jesus. The other end, there are those who may say, well, you know what? I'm just powerless. Things have spun out of control in my life. I just don't know if I can ever get my feet back underneath me. There was a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. Her life's spinning out of control. She's being manipulated by powerful religious people. She meets Jesus. Some of you say, well, I'm a good person. I'm moral. Follow the, the rules. I do everything right that I should. Well, you know what? There's a guy named Nicodemus who followed the rules. And throughout the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, the rule follower, the good person, comes to know Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter what type of person you are, we all need transformation. Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. We found him, Peter. We found the Messiah. Jesus looked at Peter. I wish I could see that look. Because I have a feeling that Jesus didn't just see Simon there. Jesus was like an artist staring at a giant wooden block of granite. And he saw the statue that was going to come out of that. Because he says, Simon, your name is no longer Simon. You're going to be called Peter. You're going to be changed. Jesus shows the prerogative of Yahweh here. In the Old Testament, it's Yahweh who changes people's names. He takes Abram and makes him Abraham. He takes Sarai, makes her Sarah. He takes Jacob, makes Jacob Israel. And now Jesus, as Yahweh says, Simon, you're going to be called Cephas. And this is way before Peter had ever made the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus sees what will happen. A disciple is about transformation. Because we have to grow. In England, there was a girl by the name of Josie Caven. She was born deaf, grew up not hearing anything. She felt totally isolated because of her inability to hear. But that changed one December when she received a cochlear implant. For the first time in her life, she heard Christmas carols. She began to hear noises. And in an interview with Josie's mother, they asked, Well, was Josie's hearing restored? She said, Yes. Completely. Then she asked, was she hearing well? And the mother said, well, not exactly. You see, Josie's learning to distinguish between sounds. Every sound is new. And she's learning to distinguish sounds, like the sound of a door closing, the sound of, a, of lights that are humming. She's got to learn to distinguish between these things. And I read that and I thought, that's a picture of coming to faith. We're given sight, but we have to learn to see. We are given the ability to hear, but now we have to distinguish. We are given new hearts, but we still have to grow to leave behind the old. And that's a process. Where are you in that process? Follower of Jesus, can you see growth? I'm not talking about never sinning or perfection. John tells us that if we say we've never sinned, we lie, we deceive ourselves. But can you honestly say that you're closer to Jesus now than six months ago? Way back in this whole thing with Emma, one of the neurologists at UT told us, don't gauge progress by what you see daily. Your daughter may do something one day and not do it again for a month. Gauge progress by where you were three months ago. 
That's how you gauge growth. Believer, are you closer to the Lord today than three months ago? You may still be struggling with sin, but can you look and say, I'm making progress by your grace, Lord. Not our works, but by your grace. I'm making progress. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will.